<laughs> okay, let's resume. Uh, we're now picking up on page 19. This is uh, the last part of our study for the day, but it's starting a new section. So I'm starting a new recording for us here. Page 19 on our study guide, we're on 1 Peter 5. And actually, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4. If you look at our study outline, uh, Peter's changing topics a little bit. He's going to now address spiritual leaders for a couple verses, as they too are shepherding from cross to crown. Of course, who has more experience than Peter about that? Maybe Paul. So I titled this section, Shepherd from Cross to Crown, and what we'll probably be able to cover with our remaining minutes today is the first part of page 19. Suffering Shepherd, Glorified Shepherd. So respond, a pastor's job is easy. They only work one day a week. True. <laughs> I like how even when you were joking, you were still laughing about it. <laughs> Okay, so I'll take your laughter as a response that that's probably not entirely true. It's more like, when are you not working? It's the impression a lot of people can get because they just simply interact with their pastor on Sunday. Well, I'm just going to say that's, and that's the dilemma. They only come to the service at all, no Bible class. No. And ironically, that makes the pastor's job harder, actually, if yeah. he doesn't see them more during the week. Go visit more. <laughs> No, 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 Mr. Elder, it's get to visit more, right? <laughs> All right. If Bethany misses a Sunday, you'll have to just show up, right? It's concerned we didn't see you on Sunday, Bethany. Well, I guess it would be safe because they're all out of diapers, right? Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, we could show. She'll <laughs> just say, "Oh, our babysitter has arrived." Yeah. <laughs> All right, we got to turn to First Peter five. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share the glories to be revealed. We'll just pause there. So, notice once again, though. Peter has done what we just read in, uh, what was it, verse 13? He's weaving in the sufferings of Christ and the glory to come. So once again, from cross to crown. But now he's talking to the elders among you, he says. Uh, maybe turn to the, the side note there, elders among you. He says, a fellow elder. Elders were appointed by Christians. We see that happening in Acts 14 by Paul. And also Paul does it on the island of Crete when he's talking to Titus about what they did on Crete. Also called by God to their position through his church, Paul himself uh, was called and he talks to the uh, elders in Ephesus in Acts 20 and he says, be shepherds. And he's actually talking to the elders. He also calls them shepherds of the church of God of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's calling that same group of people elders, shepherds, and overseers. But even though Paul appointed them in Ephesus, he gives credit where it's due. He says, the Holy Spirit made you that. No, you're, you're referring to pastor. 
Um, yeah, we're, we're getting into that. The titles are sometimes interchangeable here. So the, the distinction can be distinct uh, when he's talking about overseers in the church, but sometimes they, they overlap a little bit too. So also in uh, Ephesians 4, he talks about it's he who gave some to be pastors, teachers, evangelists. So there he seems to be making a distinction between some of those roles, but they can overlap. Apostles, so that's someone directly sent by Christ, like Peter and John, also took on the title elder. So Peter here in chapter 5 calls himself an elder. John calls himself an elder. And there it can kind of get confusing, like a, an apostle is an elder, but an elder is not an apostle. So we're starting to get categories and subcategories, I guess. Sometimes a distinction is made between elder and other positions. However, it can be used synonymously with shepherd and overseer. So just a quick overview there. When, when Peter says an elder, he's just not talking about the, the older members of the congregation. He's talking about the spiritual leaders, those who serve the flock, sometimes serving as shepherds, sometimes serving as bishop, which is another word for overseer, and so forth. So recall the things that made Peter an especially unique witness of Christ's sufferings and resurrection. So when Peter says, a fellow elder among you, how does he identify himself as unique among the elders? He, he definitely is an overseer. He's, he's an overseer who, who personally witnessed and knew Jesus. He, he was a disciple, one of the twelve. He saw, in fact, he's one of the first to see the resurrection of Christ. He was actually, with, uh, along with John, one of the very few that got to go into the courtyard and witness Christ on trial and Christ being you know, beaten and crucified. And the transfiguration makes him a unique witness along with James and John. So Peter was, when he says a witness, he's also a witness of the glory to be revealed too in the sense we saw what Christ is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw him resurrected in glory. Sure. He's unique in that he was one who openly denied in front of others that he followed Christ, and then Christ basically reinstated and forgave him and told him, feed my lambs. So you're a shepherd, Peter. You're going to go feed the flock. So Peter was not instated. You say he was reinstated, meaning that he was outside? If, if anything, Christ never directly told him he was... Yeah, when, when he denied Christ, he was never directly told, you're not a disciple. But I'm sure he felt like he had disqualified himself and put himself outside of that role. So he's told directly by Christ. No one could question, Peter, you denied Jesus. You don't deserve to be an apostle. He could say, Jesus told me, feed the flock. Jesus told me, feed the lambs. So Jesus gave him what he needed. Uh, you could call it a reinstatement or an open... Um, Open reconciliation and forgiveness. Right. So in that sense, Peter was kind of like Paul, not to the same extreme as Paul who murdered Christians, and but he was someone who knew he didn't deserve to be an apostle, but God, <coughs> God made him that. It's kind of the same thing with we do public confession and absolution. Just because we need to have that that spoken out loud absolution right. of our sin. 
right? And Jesus, as the, the chief shepherd, wanted the rest of the flock to hear what Peter had, forgiveness. And that's basically the, the, the one difference between Peter and Judas. They both denied Christ or betrayed him. Right. But Judas, even though he was filled with remorse, he just couldn't get the forgiveness part. So Peter went outside and wept bitterly, but did not entirely despair. He was still hanging around the disciples, hopeful for grace, looking to, to God for grace. Judas despaired. And he turned to the, the people in the temple courts and the priests, and they said, what is that to us? And fell into despair. All right, so let's look at the context to determine what point Peter makes by focusing on his position as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. So what point is Peter making by calling himself here a witness and a fellow elder? Okay, the veracity of this, this is, I know, you know, I've got full confidence, you should too. So it, it definitely is a comforting point that I saw Christ suffer, so don't be surprised if you suffer. Okay, if, if Peter's going to go and tell these elders to endure suffering and to shepherd the flock, he's lived it, right? He's done it. He's, he's just saying, you know, I'm not just telling you guys to participate in the sufferings of Christ. I saw and participated in the sufferings of Christ, and the glory is coming. Well, even though today um, you're a shepherd of the flock, you weren't there, you didn't witness it, but yet you can rely on the word and, and your study of it. Sure. And your, your, your intensive, intensive study, not just study, but go through a lot of study. So these elders are built up through the teaching of the apostles. Still today, shepherds listen to this apostle and they're built up by that teaching, by the eyewitness accounts of God's shepherds, the apostles. As Paul will say, we're in the church built on the foundation of Christ and the teaching of the apostles. But he also calls himself a fellow elder. He doesn't say I'm a super elder. Yeah, so that's a good point too. When he says a fellow elder, so he is carrying out the same role as they are. He's just Peter. He's just like they are called by God to serve the, the flock. So Peter's calling, even though it's directly by Christ, is no greater than their calling, even though they were appointed or called through the church to be elders. Yeah, all good points. So Peter doesn't just say that empty. You know, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of Christ. He's saying that to build us up, to encourage us and to strengthen other elders. Yeah, he's going to get into that. In fact, that's a big part of where he's headed here. If you're going to follow Christ from cross to crown, that, that means following him in humility. So Peter could have had a big head if any elder did, uh, but clearly didn't, as he says, fellow elder. All right, so look at the following to see what other spiritual leaders taught about suffering and glory. So what did Moses teach about suffering and glory? We find that in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Anyone want to read that section? 
So what does Moses, another spiritual leader, teach us about suffering and glory? Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Okay. Okay, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son, excuse me, son of Pharaoh's God, and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. Yeah. <coughs> so Moses could have, Reg Hebrews saying, could have enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of Egypt and being a prince, the son of the daughter of Egypt, but he chose not to take that on. Instead, what did he choose to take on? And he kind of did it in his self-righteous zeal and murdered somebody and called himself before he was called, tried to do his own plan of rescue. Didn't do it in the right way at first, but still, what did Moses choose? To be a Christian. Yeah, and here the Raj Hebrews says to follow Christ. You could put the title Christian here, which meant not being part of the palace, not living the good life and the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, but suffering, enduring reproach for the sake of Christ. Because why? He was looking forward to what Peter says, the, the glory that will be revealed. So Moses is one example of a leader. He was called a, a shepherd of Israel, but he was not looking for the glory of this world. He was looking for the glory of the next world. Think uh, we'll, we'll pick it up there next time as we look at some more leaders in the Bible and how they looked at suffering. Um, this section really does tie closely with the, the previous section. Chapter 5 starts with, most translations don't include this, but therefore. So does anybody have that at the start of chapter 5? Therefore, or on account of this? Or is your chapter 5 just jumping like it's a new section? You got the therefore? Okay, so the Evangelical Heritage Version captures that, which is actually part of the original Greek here. The start of chapter 5, when he addresses the elders, is immediately tied to the previous context of Peter talking about suffering under the will of God. So, so I exert the elders. Okay, so the ESV, the English Standard Version, has so wise, or likewise. So it is, this section is directly tied to what Peter had just said, suffering according to God's will. And then he had, begins to address elders. So I just thought that was a good point to, to note that this section is tied to the previous section. So the persecution that you endure, he's basically saying to elders, is an example to the flock. Let's pause there. Um, next time when we resume, we'll pick it up with um, the middle of the top of page 9. And we'll say a closing prayer regarding what we looked at in chapter 5 now. Lord, we thank you for those who have shepherded your flock, called many times through your church or like Peter, directly from Christ, and that those elders have fed the flock and carried them through many sufferings as they preach and teach about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that will follow. We ask that you bless and support shepherds today as they continue to feed your flock, that they may all live as an example to persevere, endure, and to point us from cross to crown. Amen. Okay, we're on the top of page 19 today. We <coughs> covered, last time we covered suffering shepherd, glorified shepherd. Talked about 
Uh, why Peter's bringing this up now? He's a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. Well, recall, actually, it says the start of this chapter. Therefore, you know, since you're going to follow through all this cross to crown, shepherd. So he's particularly pointing out the importance as shepherds lead by example, feed the flock, and do what they're called to do. But we had been through an exercise in the middle of page 19. We're going to look at some of the other spiritual leaders and what they taught about suffering and glory in the pages of Scripture. So Peter, it's pretty much the theme of his letter, teaches about suffering and glory. And he's a spiritual leader, and he says, fellow spiritual leaders, keep this in mind. He struggled with it himself. Uh, let's look at some of the other leaders, who I guess you could even also add themselves struggled with it at times. So I think we looked at Moses, right? The writer to the Hebrews says, Moses, he, he chose suffering. He chose to face disgrace and not to join in the, the temporary pleasures of Pharaoh's house as the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Because Moses was looking forward to a, a greater and higher throne. Okay, so what about David? Look at Psalm 27 for King David and what he thought about the pleasures of this life and the sufferings and the glory. So we'll continue our segue as we look at one of the first shepherds of Israel. Israel as a nation. Psalm 27, no details, it just says of David. So we don't know what point in his life he wrote this. What do we see in this psalm that teaches us about suffering and glory? David did have a lot of struggles in his life, right? Yeah, a lot of battles, yeah. A lot of problems he made for himself. So you'd think he's the anointed one. David was anointed to be the next king. God had chosen him. But apparently God had chosen him for suffering because that was the first many years of his, after his anointing leading to the crown. Kind of a, what David faced is, and actually it really is, a picture of the Christ. How before he enters his glory as the king, he must face his suffering. But look at this psalm. What does he say in this psalm about suffering and glory? As he said, the Lord is my life and my salvation. Yeah, as we mentioned, he, he still looks to the Lord even as he suffers. He says, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, I will be confident because... As a believer suffers, they look to God. So David teaches us that. His desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Yeah, and is he just talking about, you think, he wants to you know, stroll around the temple, or is it rather he wants to be in the presence of God, uh, the house of God, the everlasting house of God? And that's what you see at the end of the psalm. I'm confident I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. So David is not afraid when he faces suffering. He knows he'll face suffering. He has faced suffering. But he says there's, there's goodness ahead, and it's in God's house. Okay? How about uh, the sons of Korah? We've got to jump to Psalm 42. They talk about suffering and glory. What do we learn about the sons of Korah in this psalm? <coughs> They were commissioned to write music and they served 
in God's temple. Certainly see suffering, right? Tears have been my food day and night. People say to me, where is your God? And meanwhile, while suffering, these things I remember, how I used to go to the house of God. And then the refrain that comes up starting in verse 5. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So what do we learn if you're going to summarize about suffering and glory in this psalm? When everything isn't going good, we turn to the Lord. Sure, once again, Things won't always go well, but when they don't, turn to God. And look to the glory that is to come. I will see God. I will say to God, my rock. Yeah. Verse nine. So God is, well, that's Peter's nickname, right? Rocky. God is our rock. Okay, next, actually, I'm sticking in the Psalms for a bit. Look at Asaph, what he said about suffering and glory. Psalm 73. A little bit different angle taken by him here. When we suffer, something starts to happen. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 73. What can sometimes happen when we're suffering? Yeah. Yeah, we envy the arrogant, or as he goes on to describe him, really the, the unbeliever, the wicked. Because how does the unbeliever appear to be when they're living their life compared to your life sometimes? There's always seems to be great. Yeah, they're not suffering. Their, their life is going well. They got a nice house, a nice yard, a nice family. Everything is going well for them. They're successful and prosperous. Meanwhile, what's sometimes happening to the dedicated, faithful Christian who worships the Lord? They're facing struggles, health struggles, financial struggles. They're, they're being persecuted at, at times. So that's what Asaph addresses with suffering and glory. But what's he lead us to? So this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth, so they're not appearing to suffer. But verse 13 is where it turns on its head. If I, or actually 15, if I had spoken like that, that I kept my heart pure in vain, if I had done that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply till, it, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. So rather than when we suffer, looking at how the wicked are doing right now, what should we really be looking at? What's going to what's going to happen in the end? What's the big picture? Where is the goal that we're headed? So David did that, the sons of Kor did that. Asaph does it in another way. He says, "It can be easy to envy the wicked. I almost did that, but then look at the big picture. So the wicked will perish, they will be judged, their final destiny, you cast them down, God." Meanwhile, verse 23 in Psalm 73. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. So Asaph, just like Peter, is keeping your eyes on the, the crown 
the reward, the gift of our God who is going to glorify his saints. So when we suffer, when we envy the wicked, look at the bigger picture. Really, he's, he's bringing us to judgment day and to the day of Christ giving us our inheritance, the inheritance Peter keeps harping on. And verse 28 really summarizes it, I think. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Yeah. We can share. So yeah, the, the whole point of enduring the suffering is so you can lead others to bear their crosses, to make it through the trials, and to put their hope in God with you. Finally, uh, we looked at this before a little bit, but Paul in Romans 8, another shepherd, an apostle who talks about suffering and glory. Romans 8, 17 and 18. We saw several characters in the Old Testament who led us from suffering to glory. So regarding suffering, Paul writes, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But doesn't Paul make it clear we're going to share in suffering, just like Peter does, the sufferings of Christ? But... Right with that, he weaves in, as we contemplate our sufferings, we are heirs, and we are going to inherit the glory that is to come, the glory which is ours in Christ. And how does Paul describe that glory for us? Doesn't so much give us... Yeah, Christ's glory, his glory. He doesn't so much describe that glory, but he says it's kind of indescribable or beyond compare, Right? So you see this, it's consistent throughout Scripture, isn't it? Um, the suffering to the glory, the cross to the crown is not just the theme of Peter. It's a reoccurring theme throughout the pages of Scripture. It was lived by the saints and shepherds who came before, and Peter is telling shepherds in Asia Minor, and the scattered believers continue. You know, you are going to bear up under suffering, and you will share in the glories to be revealed, chapter 5, verse 1. So sometimes as Christians, we can slip into defeatism, and we only look at the suffering part. We only look at the trial part. We focus on that so much we get lost in it. We're just thinking about the setbacks, the pains, the trials. We're forgetting how we are to look at the glory that is to come. That, that's really what our heart should be set on not setting our heart on the, the present trials, which are worth comparing with what is to come. That's not to say the Christian life isn't important or blessed right now, but it is focused on what is to come. Its mindset isn't on the here and now so much as what God has in store, what he's promised. We're like Moses, just waiting. So, agree or disagree? From cross to crown could fit as the theme of all scripture. Yeah, we pretty much saw that, right? A theme, or the theme. Uh, in the glory to be revealed, Peter says here, 
Can you list the glorious things which we'll share in when Christ comes again in glory? So let's just list that together. What are we going to share in when Christ comes in glory? Sure, just being in the very presence of God, a glorious thing. Not being shut out from his glorious presence. And not only being in his presence, but being welcomed and loved, cared for in that glorious presence. Yeah. Okay, the, in the presence of God, we will be free of all the curses of sin, including suffering and pain. Whatever you're struggling with right now, Picture yourself in the presence of God and free from that forever. I got two things. Everything's just going to be good. There's not going to be any bad anymore. Right. What David says in Psalm 23 goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That goodness will always be there. Absolute goodness is what God mm-hmm. is if you're in His presence. And along with being in God's presence, no more suffering and pain and goodness. It's not that we're not going to have a body that we won't suffer. It's rather we'll have a glorified body, right? So the lack of suffering isn't because um, we're just a spiritual being, you know, like the angels. It's because we have a body that will be immune to pain and suffering and the curse of sin will be forever removed. So imagine a, a body like yours, but a perfect body. So that's part of the glory to be revealed. In fact, if you read on in Romans 8, that's what Paul's leading to is a new birth and creation being made new, but also our bodies being made new. And obviously, there's so many subcategories of blessings we can list, right? If you're in the presence of God, you have access to God, and he hears you just as he does now forever, answers your prayer um, as it's, what is Psalm 19? Maybe I don't have the psalm right, but eternal pleasures at your right hand. Uh, that we will be blessed with joy, not just the, the lack of pain, but joy forever in God's presence. Joy which we have now, knowing it is ours. Okay, anything else to add to our list? I think we got a pretty good list to look forward to. When you speak of eternal joy, it's like, you know, in this life, we have something that good happening to us or, or situation or life is great and good you know day after day after day after a while human nature kind of gets taken for granted you know we kind of I mean you just look around us this whole country you know, we've had it so good for a couple of centuries and people have taken our freedoms and everything for granted but to have eternal joy and every day or well there won't be any time there so Sin won't come in the way to cause us to... We won't have that sinful nature to take it for granted anymore. Right. So it's just, it, it's going to be such a transition in that aspect. To Instead of, well, what is God holding back? We'll be delighting in it always, never taking it for granted. Yeah, and, and forever. It's like, of course, there's no time, so I just, it's not like, what's next? <laughs> and Paul says, the more right now that we dwell on the peace of God and Christ and dwell on his gifts. We have that peace and joy right now too, because we do take for granted even now, but then we won't. Yeah. So that's a good aspect to reveal of the glory that will be revealed, how it will be enjoyed. Okay. 
there's no other thoughts on verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. So Peter says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. We'll pause. Actually, I'm going to read... I'm going to read the rest of this section here. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So there's this picture of glory again. And here even brings up the idea of the crown that we will receive. And then verse 5. In the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So Peter says at the start of this section, be shepherds of God's flock under your care, watching over them. Pastors are supposed to shepherd and watch over those entrusted to their care. Can you list some ways a herdsman literally cares for a flock? And we'll compare and discuss how that's done by a spiritual shepherd. Feeds them, yeah. So the sheep especially, you know, domesticated sheep need to be led along to a safe place for pasture. So feeds brings to pasture. He, he owns them. Okay. Right. He, they're his. So he cares for them. It's not like a hired hand where the first sign of danger flees. So the, as explained in, I think it's Matthew. The shepherd Peter would have us model is not a hired hand, but the good shepherd who cares about the sheep. That are his. Yeah. So rather than just being a hired hand, because Peter's saying, not eager for gain, but eager to serve. Because we were bought at a price. We are his. So we, we belong to Christ. And if a shepherd simply sees uh, the flock as a means for gain, they're not like Christ at all, who gave himself uh, just to gain them as part of his flock. So a shepherd leads, yeah, uh, in order to guide to good pastures or to guide away from dangerous areas, the shepherd must lead his sheep. Well, a pastor does that, right? So if, if our congregation was starting to head in a dangerous direction doctrinally, I would say, well, that, that's not a good area. We don't want to go there. God guides us this way. So that kind of gets to where do we lead with or what does a shepherd lead with? With God's word, with God's guidance. So a shepherd feeds, a shepherd leads, a shepherd guides, a shepherd cares about the flock which belongs to Christ. We'll discuss more on that point, actually. And this kind of goes uh, some of the reasons why we call our shepherds, not hire them. Right. Yeah, and built into the call system, too, is this whole not eager for gain because we have this baseline synod code. So it's not like, well, I'm going to take a call to that church because they're going to pay me much better or something. It's um, the congregations got together and decided what do we need to give to honor the gospel and to make sure that they don't have to get a second job and can meet their means. But the, the shepherd doesn't have to worry about that or look to that. Yeah. So, and that kind of um, implied within that statement where Peter says, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, um, is the idea that shepherds, as Paul teaches, receive something from the flock. 
but they shouldn't be serving because of that. Uh, they should be able to serve because of that, but not because of it serving. Okay, um, so far we have a, a literal sheep shepherd, because distinguishing between pastor shepherd, uh, likes to or needs to feed, guide, lead, care for. I guess we mentioned, did we mention protect? So protect from dangers, right? So fend off danger. So if there were some false teaching or a false teacher amongst the flock, uh, it would be expected I would at least point out that danger, if not also fight against that danger directly too, and stand up against it with the flock in mind. And to say, this is harmful what you're teaching, uh, it's going to damage the flock, and to lead the sheep away from that danger and protect from that danger, or not just false teaching, dangerous straying from their shepherd, right? So if a sheep begins to stray, just as a, a sheep shepherd would go after that sheep and say, whoa, they're going to get into some dangerous territory and bring them back, a shepherd is called to go after the straying and, and bring them back to the safety of the flock. Not to shame the sheep, but to keep the sheep safe and blessed in the, in the care of the flock. Okay, look what Peter says here as he describes the work of a shepherd. So he says, they're under your care, so there's a responsibility. You know, Bill mentioned the call system, right? A shepherd doesn't simply say, I'm going to shepherd so-and-so and so-and-so. They, they are placed under the shepherd's care as they're called to serve. So God calls shepherds today through his church. Uh, I have a call a divine call to serve here at Rock of Ages. As the congregation called me, it was a divine call of Christ through his church. Um, he says, must be willing. So you don't want someone to be like, well, I guess I better help God out. That way I'll earn some, earn some points with God if I can serve as a shepherd, right? So Ryan thought if he came here for the music program and fed the little lambs in our music program that... You know, he'd, he'd, he'd get bumped up a few notches, right? He didn't really want to come. So, but no, he, was, he expressed how he was willing to come. Uh, we, we extended a call for him to feed the lambs, and he accepted that call willingly. It's a lot of effort into it, too. Yeah, so eager to serve is the other thing there, right? So not just, okay, I'll, I'll come and I'll, I'll serve if I have to, but eager to, wanting to see the flock prosper and to be built up. And then Peter says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples. So shepherd is very different from, I guess you might say like a boss or a, a CEO. They're examples and they, they serve, not lord it over. Even if they have authority, they don't exercise that authority like the world does. Money in the world. Power and money it drive you. Yeah. And when you when you do see power and money driving a pastor, when he loves power and he loves being in charge, and when he loves receiving, you know, the lots of money, then you often see he's more concerned about himself. He doesn't protect the flock, he doesn't care about false teaching as long as it meets his end. So you do see lots of bad things enter into the flock. When power and money start to become the the end or the goal. 
Uh, let's read Jesus' re rebuke of the spiritual leaders in Matthew 23. It's kind of similar to what Peter says here. So Matthew 23, 1 to 12. Peter says, not lording it over the flock, but eager to serve. In Matthew 23, Jesus is decrying the, he says, teachers of the law and the Pharisees who sit in Moses' seat. So Moses' seat is the position of teaching the law, being an authority over God's flock. Moses was, you know, the greatest shepherd of Israel who led them out and gave the, the Ten Commandments, God's word. So Here's Jesus' instruction. Let's, let's read that rebuke for the spiritual leaders. You must be careful to do everything they tell you. Okay, so Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to have people in authority, is he? And some people misread the context of this, and they say, well, no, no, no. No one in church should have authority that people have to listen to them. Well, here Jesus, in the context of even rebuking them, still says, be careful to do everything they tell you. But... Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So what did Peter say in chapter 5? Be examples to the flock. Not, you know, tell them what they must do. It was you yourself. Show them. Live according to God's word. Okay, verse 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What does that sound like is being described in verse 4? Don't do as I do, do as I say. Right, so a, a spiritual leader who's saying, here's something you have to do, work harder, work harder, and they themselves don't step in at all to help the struggling flock. It's really a, a law-oriented church, right? If a church is tying up heavy loads on your, your shoulders, but they're not interested at all in helping you grow in your sanctified living, just piling up more and more, they're not feeding you the gospel for strength but just the law to weigh you down for shame. Jesus warns against that, those cumbersome loads. Okay, let's get to the, the heart of his issue here, verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So what's he describing for the spiritual leaders here? Me and my Yeah, big ego. It's all about me and my. It's being very haughty, right? So as you look at what Peter is describing, what Jesus is describing, do you see the similarities? So, being examples, serving, not lording it over them. And then what he says in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. He's including the, the, the shepherds. All of God's flock is to be clothed with humility. So, what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 23 here, is he against spiritual leaders as a, a principle that there shouldn't be spiritual leaders? No. No. But rather, what's his point that he's making? They should be servants. They should be servant leaders. Their attitude should be humble leaders. Uh, they should not be haughty and looking for honor and praise from people because of their position or special titles. 
Now that make them feel important. Um, Christ's example, because he was humble. Right. And, you know, Christ certainly accepted, you know, they called him teacher and title, but he was perfect. And yet very humble in all that. Verse 8 here, as we continue Matthew 23, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Some mistakenly use this portion of scripture to argue that it's wrong to have spiritual leaders. Can you explain why that's a misinterpretation which contradicts scripture? Start with the immediate context of Matthew 23. Just looking at the immediate context, is there anything that says it's wrong to have spiritual leaders? No. It's a matter of using it strictly for yourself. Right. You want to be humble and a servant. Right, so Jesus' point here is humility, not don't have spiritual leaders. He doesn't say, forget the, the teachers of the law. There should be no teachers of the law. No, rather, he says, don't be like the haughty teachers of the law, my disciples. Your brothers, be humble. <clears throat> so he's not telling his 12 disciples or the disciples are listening, don't have people in authority or people that lead the flock or feed the flock. But rather, what attitude should those leaders have? And finally, compare it with the rest of Scripture, right? The rest of Scripture makes clear uh, there are pastors and teachers, as we saw last week in that left-hand column, looking at Acts 20, Ephesians 4, Acts 14, Titus 1, and finally, what Peter says here, 1 Peter 5, or what Jesus told Peter, as he said, feed my sheep. Okay, so just want to make that clear that some people will look at that section of scripture, but Peter's making the same point as Matthew. Spiritual leaders should be humble, along with all of God's flock. So at least two parallel points between what Jesus taught regarding spiritual leaders and what Peter teaches. I guess we have humility, right? And not seeking personal gain. Probably be another one we could throw in there. Serving the flock. So both of those kind of come out of his charge to, he says, be examples to the flock, not lording it over those entrusted to you. Peter himself was, and he calls himself an elder. He says, I'm a fellow elder. Right there you see there's, there's supposed to be leaders in the church. He tells them to shepherd. So that's just the title we have for pastor. Uh, the title minister just means actually servant, so to serve. Okay, um, how are we up for time? All right, we could probably flip the page, right? Still on the same similar topic here. We're on top of page 20 now. Rereading verse 2 especially, he says, Be shepherds of God's flock. Can you share several important reminders for Christians and pastors, which we can draw from the title, God's Flock? Yeah. Um, I think for Christians, it's 
who we belong to, and as pastors, it reminds them that uh, ah, train of thought gone. Uh, it reminds pastors who really is in charge uh, of these people in terms of uh, spiritual eternity. I guess. Sure. To break down your your first thought, it reminds the people who are shepherded who they really belong to. So it's not, this is Pastor Barthel's church, or, you know, I belong to so-and-so's church. It's really God's flock, God's church, and you belong to him, not some specific leader who's shepherding or feeding. And that, that's, I think, important for the flock to remember. Okay, so one point you made, Ryan, was it's not so much who you're, earthly under-shepherd is, you need to remember you're, you belong to God. Sometimes we put too much focus, I think, on, oh, so-and-so's pastor at such a church, they're doing great, and that, that church is really thriving. Put the focus on that pastor, like it's their church. But Peter says, no, it's not their church, it's God's flock, God's church. And then what was your second point now? I can't remember it. Your, your first point was good. I remembered that one. Then I lost the train of thought, too. I think that's for the best. Okay. <laughs> Try to get too many points at once. So I'd, I'd say it's, that definitely is one I wanted to highlight, is uh, don't focus on the person or the pastor who's shepherding. It's, it's not their flock. It's God's. What else? Um, so that's a good reminder for Christians. What about for the pastor? They belong to God, too. Okay. So the pastor needs to remember they're under God. It's his flock, not their flock. So opposite direction, right? Don't get so tied up in thinking you have the right to do what you want with that flock. It's not your flock. You're an overseer, not a dictator. Right? So you're, you're to oversee under God, not to put yourself over God and make up things. How about some gospel truths? We got we got lots of law. Your, yours was a gospel truth, I think, too, to don't focus on the past, but you belong to God. How is that a, a comforting gospel truth for a Christian pastor to know it's God's flock? Well, okay. serves willingly and eagerly. Okay, so that would definitely be a truth that ties in that it's God's flock. Why would you be willing to serve? Because you want to serve your God. That's why you want to serve the flock. Because, and also, what makes you willing to serve God's flock? He bought that flock, as Bill mentioned earlier. God paid for that flock with the price of his own blood. Uh, the Son of God came and, and won that flock from death and from hell, and he bought it, so it's God's flock. That, that motivates you to serve willingly when you see what God has done. Sure, and if it's God's flock... He's given you the, the desire. When Peter says, be willing, God works willing shepherds. Uh, money, power, and sinful nature works unwilling shepherds who do it for their own personal gain. But, Pastor, your call to be a pastor comes from God. Right, and that's a comfort for me. When, when I remember this is a divine call, God called me to serve his flock here. Rather than to think, oh, what if I'm not good enough, or what if I'm not doing good enough, it's God's flock. He'll take care of the flock. And he called me to serve here. So just to be faithful. 
sort of like evangelizing. Sure. Evangelizing with, with your thought, any new ones that come in, you want to keep them in. Right, instead of, oh, we gotta get our, we got to get our numbers up here so we can you know, make sure we meet our budget. It's more of a evangelism. There, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this sheep pen. We must gather them also. So the focus is comforting because God wants us to reach the lost, not simply to you know, meet the budget. And he'll provide, and as he provides, just be faithful. So a lot of comfort in knowing it's God's flock for a pastor because he could stress out on thinking uh, it's all in his shoulders, but it, God's bought the flock, he will feed the flock, and he'll guide the flock. You simply need to give them the word and sacrament that God has provided. Uh, so what am, what am I going to do to feed God's flock? Well, God says, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, my blood given for you. He'll also guide you. Right. So for the pastor, it's a good reminder. If it's God's flock, you might have your agenda or your plan for what you want to do. But make sure that's shaped by God's will and his word. And you're going to share the gospel with us. Right. I don't want to talk about you know the, the trip I had yesterday or how much fun I had on vacation and motivate you to be a better dietitian or to live your life to its fullest. I want to give you the gospel. I want you to, to be able to go from cross to crown with the strength God provides and to, to see it here. I always tell the confirmation students uh, what the goal is for confirmation class. I ask them, what do you think the goal is? And they always come up with these. Well, so we can, so we can learn what our church is about or so we can, you know, take communion. No, the, the goal is so that they will be in heaven someday. And I just happen to see teaching you this word of God to be the best way to do that and, and shepherding you in this, this body of believers to be the best way. If, if you, after learning everything, want to be a part of this church body, my goal is ultimately to see you in heaven. And just doing the best way I know how right now. All right. Uh, Peter's words apply to anyone who wants to serve God's church by preaching or teaching the gospel. What are some of the different types of positions filled by people as they serve as spiritual leaders and teachers in our congregations? So Peter, just even in this section, says elders, overseers, and shepherds. Uh, overseers comes from that term watching over them. So just in this section, he's got three different titles for those who serve as leaders in God's church. So anyone that's preaching or teaching the gospel needs to keep these words to heart, uh, that they're willing, that they're eager to serve, that they're not seeking personal gain or dishonest gain, uh, that they are not lording it over those entrusted to them, that it's God's flock, that they're examples. All those are points for any called worker. What are some other positions besides pastors uh, that we utilize in our congregation? Elders. So we got a head usher. We got head elders here. We got teacher here. Yep, we have those who serve in the choir here and lead the choir. And we have all sorts of, we got council, council members, so spiritual leaders that make plans and direct uh, the, the way that the church carries out its ministry. Yeah. Uh, even those who use the, the gifts that the congregation gives to maintain uh, the place of worship and all the, the things that are entrusted to our care. Yeah, all those things. So you could add a couple more. Like our, our church doesn't have one, but we have staff ministers as well. So they're called. We have 
at our congregation, those who are called to teach in a limited way, but on Sunday morning for the, the little children, Sunday school teachers. So you have that. Um, any capacity where if someone has called you in the name of Christ, two or three have gathered, they'd said, come serve, shepherd, feed, use the gospel. Uh, these words apply to them. All right. So looking at, again, verse 2 to 3, we have to discuss what pitfalls must be avoided by minister of the gospel. And how does a body of believers watch out for these dangers when they call someone to serve? So be willing, eager to serve. How do we avoid the pitfall that someone's not willing or not eager to serve? When they do it because they think it's a word that's going to earn them something. Sure. So how do we how do we avoid that pitfall? When when we call someone to serve, whether they're going to be an usher or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a teacher, how do we avoid having people that are unwilling serving on the council? How do we avoid having people that are unwilling stepping up to do things? You guys just don't get it because you're always willing, so it's hard to imagine that. But <laughs> don't force people to do things. That's big, I think, in churches. We, I, I know in my home church, we always struggle to get people to serve on council every year. And I think the more we force people into those positions, either them, you know, if they're not truly willing, um, it's just not going to make their experience. Right. So if we're, we're like, oh, we have to have this many people on the council, therefore you have to serve, or we, we have to operate uh, Christian Sunday school on Sunday morning, therefore you have to do it. Shouldn't it rather be, hey, we have someone who's able and wants to play piano. Let's have them serve in worship instead of compelling people to serve just because we, we think we need to have it. Shouldn't we rather say, here's someone who's willing. Now we can meet that ministry need. Now we can fill that goal. Well, I've said it before. It goes back to being in the Word. When you're in the Word and you, the love grows and, and the want to serve grows. Right, exactly. When, you, when, you, when you're not in the Word, nothing else is going to matter either. We'll be having it's just a church. A Sunday morning, 9 30, 10 30, and I'm out of here. I got things to do. <laughs> we'll have a church full of drudgery and people that are unwilling to participate in anything if we don't have the gospel and people aren't in the Word to feed them. That's where the willingness comes from. Yeah. So, for example, it's attached that concept to the pastoral ministry. How do we get pastors that are willing? We give them the gospel. We, we say, hey, if, if you're going to serve as a pastor, we want you to spend this many years digging into Scripture, learning Scripture. And you know what? If they're not willing by the end of that, fine. They can do a different career, but they'll be willing. If they spent that time in the Word, they'll want to share that Word. Or a council member you're not going to call on someone to serve on council that hasn't been to worship in six weeks, right? You want someone that is digging into the Word, that is fed by the Word, and will step up and say, yeah, I could do that. So that's why um, you know, when I ask for volunteers for things, first group I'm going to ask are the people there on Sunday morning or the people coming to Bible study. Not because they have to do all the work, but because they're the willing ones. The other people need to come to worship and Bible study to be fed, to grow. Um, sometimes I've, I've heard people say, oh, let's schedule this person as an usher because then they'll come to worship. 
That's getting the, the whole thing backwards. They're, they're serving, but they're probably not willing, and they're only there because they've been asked to serve. Okay, how about not pursuing dishonest gain? How do we avoid that one when we ask people to serve in the church? We ask them to volunteer willingly. Make a, a job or something like that. Okay. So what about the dishonest gain part? So maybe somebody is willing, but what are they willing for? Yeah, well, they're, they're too willing to be the treasurer. Okay. They're almost insistent. I want to be the treasurer. I want to so, have there's a, there's a, That's why we have at least two or more. And don't, <laughs> and don't do a background check. There's a voters meeting and two candidates are up for treasurer and one really insists he's the very best and is con campaigning for it and the other one's, yeah, I'm willing to do it. And I, I think people have asked and said I'd be good at it. So which one are you going to vote for? The politician? Or, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's not get sidetracked here. Yeah. And we'll call it a wrap. So yeah, not pursuing dishonest gain, uh, sometimes that means simply looking for volunteers, but also it means if someone is receiving pay, that's not the reason they, they do it, right? So to make sure that it's not about the money. So you, once again, your candidate, your pool of candidates is going to come from, that's why we want members you know, who are involved in ministry. You're not just going to say, uh, we'll take someone from the community to be church secretary. We want someone who's willing, uh, even though that's not a necessary leadership position, we always want to look for someone who's invested in the ministry. Uh, sometimes churches will outsource stuff. You'll have that. And yeah, they can like hire an accountant and that can happen. But if, if at any way they're serving with the gospel, do you want someone who's only there for a paycheck? In any way? Yeah, definitely. You want them there for more than the paycheck. You want them there to be eager to serve and to make that gospel message heard, uh, to be shepherding the flock. Oh, and finally, how about not lording it over? How do we avoid that when we're looking for leaders in the church? Maybe don't include it in the job description. Please lord it over us. <laughs> we want someone who's a ruthless leader who will get things done. That doesn't, that works in the business world, right? Someone who's ruthless and heartless and they get to the bottom line, they make the business grow. You don't want that in a spiritual leader. You don't want someone who's only focused on getting things done. You want someone who cares about souls. Right? Well, that's all law, no, no gospel, no love. Right. And it works in this world. And because it works in this world, uh, sometimes our congregations buy that up. It, sometimes it comes up under the guise of professionalism. And that's, that's good and fine to be professional. But if that's the bottom line and you're trampling over the flock, you're missing the gospel. You're missing the gospel. So you've got to watch out for that. Uh, not lording it over the church. Sometimes we justify lording it over others for the sake of, well, this is the way it has to be done. Not according to scripture, it, humility, um, being considerate, compassionate, um, bending over for the sake of the weak. So not lording it over others. Uh, can you share what you consider to be some of the top priorities a pastor or church worker should have in order to be an example to the flock? Humbleness, for one. 
Sure. How can you be an example? Imagine if you had a a spiritual leader who everybody looks up to who's not humble. Wouldn't you have an arrogant flock altogether? Well, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be haughty and proud. Churches do end up becoming that, and it's often because the leader is. I was talking with someone yesterday. I I can't judge him because I don't know his church, but he was saying his church has a dress code. So, okay. So do we. Come please have some on. Right. And, uh, you know, he seemed like a nice guy. He was Roman Catholic, but you got to be careful that you're not lording it over others to make... So be an example to the flock. Well, yeah, dress appropriately, but don't... Okay, so back to that discussion point. What are other priorities that you'd say should be some of the top priorities a church worker has. So we got humility. In order. What's that? In order. Okay, so top priority, that's a good one, because we were mentioning how can you feed the flock if you aren't yourself fed? So top priority should be humility, and another top priority should be in the Word. So it should be someone who spends time around the Word, values the Word, respects, dedicates time to the Word. Yep. I'd say those are... Definitely two I would put in the top. Humility and in the word. Reminds me of Isaiah 66. This is the one who I esteem, one who trembles, who's humble at heart and who trembles at my word. Okay, so as an example to the flock, they should be willing. If, if they're asked to do something, you shouldn't have to prod them on. They should just do it without having to be you know, coaxed or anything. Just a willingness is there. Sure, happy to serve. So if you have a, a spiritual leader who shows up for the council meeting and like, oh, this meeting ran two hours long last week or two hours long last month. I hope it doesn't happen again. I, I just don't have time for that. Right? So be willing, be examples, willing to serve. Yep, good, good points. So things to keep in mind. And what I want us to discuss earlier is how do we avoid that? Because it can happen in in healthy congregations. We're blessed right now to not have, as far as I know, spiritual leaders who are not willing or eager for personal gain or who are lording it over others, but that can happen. So we want to be careful that it it doesn't happen. Um, I think that willingness thing is maybe going to be a challenge for us because when people step up and they see others don't, maybe they feel burnt out. So we got to watch out for that. Make sure Make sure that we're not just trying to fill positions, but we're, we're looking for willing people to fill those positions. So if we have, for example, right now, the need for a church president, it's not, oh, we have to have a church president. It's rather, we'll wait till someone that's willing comes along, not force, pigeonhole someone into there that isn't willing to do it. So God will provide. Why don't we close with a prayer since we've reached our time for today? Let's pray about what we discussed. Lord, we thank you that you have given us uh, shepherds, overseers who watch over and feed your flock. As Peter directed spiritual leaders and uh, those who serve in God's church, we ask that you give your church those who are not eager for dishonest gain, but willing to serve and with eagerness to serve, lead as examples to the flock, not lording it over them and help both flock and shepherd to see that they are God's flock. Uh, that the pastor not fret or worry, but know that the flock has been bought by the blood of Christ and also not become haughty 
as they serve under Christ, and that the flock looks to the shepherd, but ultimately to Christ, our good shepherd. We pray that this be done here at Rock of Ages, in our church body, and in all of your church throughout the world as we travel from cross to crown. Amen. First Peter 5, uh, last time we looked at shepherd God's flock, um, and we're going to pick up now with crown of glory on First Peter 5, verse 4. So we looked at what shepherds uh, do as they shepherd, spiritual shepherds in God's church. Peter himself, called to shepherd, now tells uh, the, the elders, the leaders of the church in Asia Minor, shepherd God's flock. Now verse 4, and when the chief shepherd's appear, shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So this is one verse which actually helped form our study theme, from cross to crown. He says, you'll receive the crown of glory. Uh, that's where God's people are destined, and that's what we have in store by God's grace. Let's compare that with um, Daniel 12. So what, what Peter says here about receiving the crown of glory that will never fade away. If someone can read for us Daniel 12, 2 to 3. And while we have some paging there, note that we got three other verses we'll be looking up regarding this topic, the crown of glory that we receive. Anyone that can read for us uh, Daniel 12, 2 to 3? Okay. Okay. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting condemn. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There you go. So when you look at that, who's going to receive a crown of glory? Well, it sounds like those who lead many to righteousness. Sounds a lot like what Peter's saying here. Uh, when the chief shepherd appears, uh, a faithful shepherd will receive a crown of glory. Kind of sounds like when you compare with what Daniel says, as if shepherds or evangelists maybe are the ones that get a crown of glory. But is that it? Is it just shepherds and evangelists? Those who bring people to faith that get a crown? Let's read more. So, well, even if you're in heaven, it's like you know, the, the psalmist says, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. So... Obviously, the shepherd doesn't serve for that crown, but it, God is going to acknowledge uh, the gospel and those who spread the gospel on earth and served him in, in this life. But let, let's look beyond those verses. Let's look at 2 Timothy 4.8 and Revelation 2.10 and Revelation 3.11 to see who else will receive a crown of glory. I have 2 Timothy 4.8. Okay, so let's read 2 Timothy 4.8 and compare with that. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Okay, so it sounds like here Peter's saying, shepherds, you'll receive a crown of glory. Notice he never says only shepherds. And it sounds like Daniel is saying those who lead many to righteousness will receive, you know, will shine like the stars forever. But Daniel's not saying only those who receive or who lead others to righteousness. Paul says here in 2 Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, there is in store for me a crown of glory 
And not only for me, what does he tell us? But to all those who have loved his appearing. Yeah, so how can we answer that? Who else will receive a crown of glory? Yeah, all believers, all who trust in the Lord. So you got to look at the rest of Scripture. You see Paul and Peter use, or Daniel and Peter use that expression to encourage people. Don't think your time sharing the gospel, um, being eager and willing to shepherd this flock, don't think that God's not going to notice that or it's going to go wasted. Uh, He's going to give you a, a gift of grace to acknowledge that you served him in heaven. And Paul, when he writes to Timothy, says, it's not only for me and you, Timothy, it's for all who long for Christ's coming. We're all looking forward to this crown. Okay, and then Revelation speaks of the crown. Obviously, Paul's using, and Peter are using figurative speech, you know, this crown of glory. It's the victor's crown that you finished the the race. It's a, a neat picture. Revelation has some visions and illustrations of that for us as well. Revelation 2, 10 and 3, 11. Verda? 2, 10. Do not fear anything that you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will suffer for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Thanks, yeah. So the crown of life, it's called there. Um, I want you to note that when this crown comes up, it's not the goal of our sanctified living. It's always presented as staving off discouragement when sanctified living becomes difficult, that you don't think, well, this is all for nothing, or it's, it's not really that important to God. So you see in that context in Revelation, endure you know, this suffering and persecution, very similar to Peter's letter, because you're going to receive a crown. Or Daniel, when you look at Daniel's letter, it's about living as an exile you know, among those foreign people, and it seems like God is not ruling, but someday you'll see him on his throne and you'll receive the crown. And here in Revelation, here in Peter, as he says, shepherd, uh, remember the start of chapter 5 says, therefore, look at the previous chapter, since they're suffering, uh, those who suffer according to God's will, therefore, shepherd, he reminds them there's a crown coming. And that, that's why I went with that theme, cross to crown. It, it, it's there to stave off discouragement, to encourage the believer who's already saved and who might think all this leads to nothing. How about Revelation 3.11? Someone have that one? Okay. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. So mentioned once again, right? So you already have the crown. Don't let someone take it from you. Hold on. So once again, it's about, believer, don't, don't lose hope. Don't lose encouragement. The crown is yours. Look at the theme of Isaiah. I'm looking at Isaiah 35 and 51.10. This is a refrain that comes up in Isaiah um, twice. So it's one of the themes repeated by him. He says, Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with sinning. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and sorrow will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. So how's that compare with what we've been studying about this crown of life, this crown of glory? Joy will crown them. Yeah. We'll enter Zion with singing. That would be happy. So what we're to look forward to is not just, oh, we're seated on, seated on some throne and we got this crown that everybody says, ooh, that's a pretty crown. <laughs> the idea is victory. The idea is 
You're resting from all the, the hardship of the taking up, bearing your cross in this life, and you've reached the goal of your faith, your salvation, which Christ has given you, and you receive the crown and it's filled you with joy. You're sinning for joy. That'll be fun, right? Picture heaven. It's taking the music we have right now and carrying that into eternity before our God. And that's a neat picture, isn't it? Gladness and joy will overtake them. Right now we're, we feel like we're overtaken by sorrow, but that's going to flee away and we'll be overtaken by joy and gladness, everlasting gladness. Yeah. Other thoughts on this idea of a crown of glory? We'll look at a lot of the places in Scripture where that idea comes up. We've got to move on, so let's flip the page. We're going to start the next section here. Now, according to the way that I've divided the study, this closing section, verse 5 to 14, um, this will be a separate recording that's posted online. So if you're just tuning into our recording, uh, we are in the middle of one of our studies, but we're wrapping up the final section now. This is page 21 of your study guide, 1 Peter 5, starting at verse 5. 